Welcome to episode 275 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. This is astronomy emails for cold or cloudy nights. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. Did you go out under the stars this week, Shane? Nope. It was uh, fairly cloudy here. What's wrong with you, Shane? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the only night when it wasn't cloudy, I think was Friday night and I was tempted, but (laughs) I believe the the temperature was about minus 20 Celsius and there was a bit of a wind. So (laughs) yeah, I just normally like in the middle of winter, I would do that, but I am just not, I I haven't adjusted yet to to cold temperatures. So it was too much of an ask. I, I did not do it. It's been so cold. This has been the coldest year here in Saskatchewan, which is not known for its balmy Novembers, by the way. It's been the coldest November so far since 1911. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. There is nobody alive today that's experienced weather this cold in Saskatchewan. (laughs) Yeah, geez. Well... Congratulations, Chris. I, Thanks. I now you can add your name to the list of, you know, cold temperature experiences. Yeah, I've already got, I've got the records in every province. When I lived in Nova Scotia, we had the most snow in a single like 24 hour period of time. And then we moved to Ontario and two years later, we had the most snow that Ontario ever saw in a 24 hour period of time. And then we moved out here. Three years after we moved here, we had the most snow Saskatchewan ever seen in a 24 <laughs> Like, it's just like the, you know, you think, what are your chances? And yeah, my chances, not so good. But it was, I got up on whenever it was Friday morning, because Friday was a day off here. And uh, I thought about going out. It was nice and clear, mm-hmm. but it was minus 32 degrees with the wind. Yeah, that's rough. That's too cold. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, folks. You you just, you can't do it. You can't observe when it's that cold. Minus 20 or something, maybe, but minus 32 is really like 10 degrees too cold. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, it is hard that way for sure. Yeah. I did do one astronomy activity this week though. I should say. What's that? Well, I taught my class. I have my last class this week. By the time this episode goes live, I'll have taught my last class, but I, uh, I made red lights for my class attendees. <laughs> oh, okay. Just putting some red tape over something. Oh, I get pretty fancy because of the cold weather. I felt pretty inspired to actually do something. So that's what I've done in the past. But this time I thought, huh. So in the past, what I've done is just slap the red tape over, but then never quite works out quite as well as I would have liked. And it sort of looks kind of crappy because, you know, you got like all this overlapping red tape. So what I did is I took the uh, I took the lights and I kind of made an imprint in the red duct tape. I got some red gel cellophane that I keep up at my office here for making red lights. I combined the two and then I put like a heavy layer of cherry craft paint over top. It kind of looks like putty, one of the students said. So, but I cut it all around. So it looks stuck. So when you look at the light, it just looks like a normal little silver flashlight. But then if you look at the uh, at the bulb end, it's got like all this red stuff on it that's kind of hard to identify because it's like a whole bunch of different stuff there. And they are the perfect red illumination. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. This week, I, I spent some time researching potential amber flashlights that are like fully dimmable. Mm. 
And of course, there's really nothing out there. Um, I've got one. Yeah, the uh, the Rigel one. Yeah, it's expensive. Yeah, and but it broke. <laughs> that's the thing. That's the part. I <laughs> I don't mind buying my way out of this problem, but I don't. You know, it needs to last more than twelve months. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's not something I'm interested in, but. Uh, I might make one, uh, oh, yeah. I was doing a little bit of research there. So that might be my winter project is to Ooh. turn out some of these things. So more well, to come. You, if you can make one, I will, I will take one too, because I did like, and I used it that first. I think, I think mine lasted about three months and then it just really flaked. And then now it just, it only, it works in red still. And the red side is, is awesome. Like it works mm-hmm. really well. It's just a regular red flashlight. But, uh, I would have just bought like either a red, I think if I was doing it again, I would have a red flashlight and an amber flashlight. Cause I kind of found that I was either using the amber or I was using the red. I typically wasn't using them like interchangeably, like I thought I would. That's okay. Yeah. So I would definitely have an amber flashlight again. I just wouldn't try combining the two. So the thing that I found handy with the uh, amber is that you can you can see a little bit better. And like if you drop something like a lens cap or even like a screw, how many times have we dropped a screw out there? Um, then it, it's, you know, it, it's almost as good as just using a white light, but it doesn't blind you. Like if you go and use a white light, it's almost like has like the opposite impact. Theoretically, you can see better, but it's so bright. It's just blinding you. Right. So it's not good. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So potentiometers again, you're like the potentiometer king. Uh, no, I think I would go with, uh, like a pulse modulator Ooh. that, uh, gives you better control of the mm. kind of dampening of the light. So, Whoa. so we'll see. Uh, I'm just trying to put all the pieces together to see what it'll cost, you know, to buy the supplies. Uh, it, it really isn't a difficult project. It's just getting all of the right stuff and then determining whether or not, uh, you know, I'll be happy with it. Well, maybe we can make it an actual astronomy project and uh, and and sort of crowdfund it. <laughs> well, I don't think it'll be super expensive. Like I, right. I think potentially the uh, I don't even know if it would be thirty dollars with everything involved. Really, uh, flashlight? Yeah, I don't think it would be too expensive. So, well, I'm happy to help fund this project myself then, because I I would like to have one. I was just kind of. I don't blame Rigel. Like I know what they were doing is that, you know, and I, and they were great to work with. They may even warn me as much, but like, you know, when I'm out at my dark sky site, I'm like in and out every night, like sometimes all night. And so that's probably like, I bet you that's years of use that another person's going to put the light through. Right. It's just not going to last for my purposes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would love to have one. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, like I like I said, I'm I'm contemplating it, and uh, I may I may try it, uh, but I may not. I'll keep you posted. We always shout out to our super listener Jim. He's uh, Polyphemos uh, from Cloudy Nights. Am I saying his name right on there? Polyphemos, something mm, like that. Sure, something like that. Anyway, I'd actually gone on, you know, because I'm not sure what the rule is on Cloudy Nights. So Cloudy Nights is a forum that both Shane and I have been long term members of, but less frequent posters on, I guess probably is the best way to post it infrequently in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you. Something yeah. Like I'm not super active. I'm a, I'm more of a lurker than a poster. Yeah. I always feel like, like I know quite a bit about nebula filters, but I don't know a fraction of what the person who posts most about nebula filters on there knows about. So it's like, 
I, I still learn about Nebula filters on there. But anyway, so I went on, I was thinking about posting the um, ATM episode that we did with uh, Tom last week. And I thought, uh, I don't know if they'll let me post it because sometimes they're funny about kind of some, like, I don't want us getting classified as a retailer because we're not, we're not a business because we just do this for fun. But then sometimes they can still be kind of funny about it on there. So I was like, well, maybe I'll go on and just write um, one of the moderators to see if they would let me post it just because Tom is a member of the uh, Clyde and Knights forum and, and there'll be other people on there who might, uh, who might enjoy listening to, to that episode. And so I went on there and Jim had already posted on there um, yeah. about Tom's episode. And, and Jim, I think said that he wasn't an ATM or either, but, uh, but it put it up there. And so I was like, this is great because if, if a regular listener just posted, that's totally fine. And so we don't have to worry about trying to navigate the moderators or anything like that. And uh, I wouldn't want to get like banned or, or relinquished to, um, what do you call it? Like um, a uh, a business status or whatever they call retailer status, I think. And uh, I don't want to only be able to post in the retailer forum because I might have questions that I want to post in a forum or post my sketches without being labeled as a, as a retailer because we're not a retailer of any sort. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so you might have to create a pseudonym if that ever happens. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Speaking of pseudonyms, there's a... There was another person. So as I was looking through, I'm like, oh, what have other people posted? I guess this was like from about a year or so ago, just over a year ago. And there was somebody who posted under the name of, I think it was like O-Carms or O-Charms or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they had like, people were just like discussing the podcast, I guess, which was really cool to see. And they put this, this is all they said. This is their entire post. But I thought it was so good. <laughs> they put, did you read this? Uh, no. Well, just in your notes, I I didn't actually see it on cloudy nights. (laughs) This is what they wrote. So people are like having this conversation and then O-Germs chimes in with, after a day of work, it's so relaxing to listen to Chris and Shane talking about Teleview, Takahashi, Dobson, Bortle One, minus 20 degrees, and all the other subjects that really matter in life. (laughs) That was, I just was like, this is what I want to put as our slogan on the next round of t-shirts we do. Yeah, yeah, well, that might be the right one. <laughs> <laughs> really like it. So an email back from uh, from Andrew. Um, yeah, do you want me to to read this one? Sure. Yeah. So Andrew is uh, is our winner of the Sue French book. I'm gonna try to get it out in the mail tomorrow. So we had like this big storm last week. We had like almost a foot of snow, and it's been like minus thirty something. But um, I have jury duty tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to go and we'll see, we'll see how long I'm there for, but I'm going to take the book with me and the place, there's a place I can mail it from um, across the street from, uh, from my work. So if I get done there um, with time to spare, then I'm going to take it over, you know, anyway. Um, so Andrew wrote, uh, you know, as, as a thanks back uh, when I let him know that he won, um, he said, Oh, wow, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, it really is perfect for me. Perfect, perfect for me. I've heard so many great things about the book, which is Sue French Deep Sky Wonders, and feel like it's uh, exactly what I need. In fact, at our last club observing night, someone remarked that when you can't see what you're planning to look at, just pull out Deep Sky Wonders and start going through the targets from there. Uh, good advice, I think. Plus, as we start heading into the cloudy season. Uh, this will be great reading for those nights I'm stuck indoors. 
I'm thrilled to hear this. Thank you guys. And please pass along my sincere thanks to Jim for his donation. Uh, you can assure him it's going to a good home. I loved hearing the shout outs to our brewery uh, on the show too. Uh, that was very kind of you, Andrew. So yeah, appreciate that. I think it's super cool. I think it's a, it's a great book for where he is in his journey. And then as well, I certainly appreciate the way that he had sort of custom written up a pun as an email to us. I thought that was pretty clever as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was really good. Well, um, oh, one of the things, yeah, maybe just mention briefly is that, yeah, we did have like a couple of weird little technical things and it worked out well because I had meant to uh, email Andrew earlier in the week. And then um, there, I think we just uh, both had a couple things on and uh, I meant to email him before the episode came out. And then it just worked out that that episode ended up getting delayed by a few hours. So on Thursday, it came out just slightly later just because of technical issues at uh, at Podbean, I think it was. And then, uh, so I wrote him just as the episode went live. So it, it worked out in the end. Maybe built a little bit more suspense, suspense for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you want to read the next email from Hank? Uh, yeah. So Hank says, Hey, Chris and Shane in the last show, Chris said he owns both versions of the deep sky wonders book paperback and hardcover, uh, used copies are available and I plan to buy one, uh, paperback or hardcover is not important to me. Is the content identical in both versions? Chris, is it? No. Oh, <laughs> it's not the same. Okay. So the paperback version of the Sioux French book called deep sky wonders is um kind of like about twice the thickness of maybe a thicker magazine in fact it's probably about as thick as some of the really thick magazines that are out there whereas the uh, hardcover edition is like about an inch thick um Mm. they almost seem like they're not the same book however i think much of uh, the information in the soft cover is in the hardcover it just there's a lot more of it so instead of just having maybe uh, one little bit on Cygnus. I think there's several articles on Cygnus. And what it is, it's just a simple fact that um, these uh, this book is based on the column Sue French had in Sky and Telescope magazine for like, I don't know, like 15 years or something like that. And uh, and so as time went on, there was just more articles once they did the final edition was around the time that she uh, finished up that column. Uh, so it just is a more um, complete um, version of that. However, there actually are three versions of Deep Sky Wonders. I did is, not know. Yes, it's a little bit confusing. Um, and the first version is also a compendium of articles from the Deep Sky Wonders article that's in Sky and Telescope magazine from like 1948 or 52 or whenever it started until the early 90s. Now, that was not authored by Sue French. Of course, it was authored by a guy named um, Walter Scott Houston. And Houston died in the early 90s. And then uh, Stephen O'Meara, who's a well-known amateur astronomer and uh, another former uh, contributor of Sky and Telescope magazine, he took many of his articles and put them into a book. Now, these books are extremely different and I would say that um, this other book is well worth owning too. It's a narrative, sort of more of a narrative on like the history of amateur astronomy and just like the, you know, as how things changed over time with Dobsonians and nebula filters and 
just observations. It doesn't have too many diagrams or sketches. It has a couple black and white photos. Not not a couple. It has several black and white photos, a few gear photos, but but it's more focused on um, Walter Scott Houston's observations, emails that he received, and uh, just conversations he had with other amateur astronomers about so many objects in the nighttime sky. Whereas in the Sue French book, she's really kind of like guiding you through those observations. So anyway, I, I really um, enjoy both books, and I think they're both worth owning. I think if uh, if I had to have sort of any two books on my shelf, uh, it would be both those books. They they would be they're sort of tops because Houston's book really gives you that history, and you really feel like this sort of personal connection with Walter Scott Houston as you read through it. And uh, it's a very approachable, easy language. It has a lot of the language that we use in amateur astronomy as well. So by the time you finish reading that book, you'll have the language of amateur astronomy down. Whereas a Sue French book uh, doesn't have as much of that narrative. It's really just a guide to observing. So you actually can use it at the eyepiece or read about it, like Andrew said on Cloudy Nights, and then maybe go do some observing. It's good for them. Cool. Uh, Hank goes on to say, uh, I listened to every show. And I'm not interested in ATMing myself, but found that show very interesting. Uh, mm -hmm. I did try to grind an eight inch mirror when I was 16 years old, but failed to follow through to completion. It is a lot of work. Uh, thanks guys. And then Hank signs off. Yeah. Thanks for the email, Hank. And, uh, yeah, that ATMing, I don't know if I'll ever get into it, but I certainly enjoyed the conversation with Tom. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I just, I really enjoyed being like an armchair ATM or, you know, you're, you're more into ATMing than I am, Shane. Like you, you do build some stuff and, and do a great job. I'm always interested to hear, like you want to build a red, uh, an amber flashlight. I think that's a really cool project. I, I am not, I'm just not that handy. And when I do go to build stuff, it, it just doesn't turn out. Um, so because of that, I think I'm, I'm even more fascinated by it because I just love seeing what other people are building and doing. And then uh, I also really just love looking through these telescopes um, that people have built. Um, like I said, my best views of some things have been through telescopes that, uh, you know, that somebody spent like all their free time uh, grinding, um, you know, glass, um, you know, out of, out of a sphere in, in their garage and, uh, and eventually getting it illuminized or silvered and mounting it in a telescope that they spent their their other free time cutting out of wood and and steel, and uh, there really is like and those telescopes can work so well. Many telescopes you buy off the shelf they require some a little bit of modification, but uh, but these telescopes people build just right from scratch. It's just amazing to think about that that a human hand can construct something that is going to enable you to see uh, galaxies that are millions of light years away. It's just fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Felipe wrote us, um, I'm not going to read it, like, and I'll get into this in a second, but Felipe wrote, uh, I'm catching up with the episodes today. I loved Andrew's email as I have worked in a brewery here in Brazil and loved the idea of the astronomy-related beer names. I do love stouts too. Uh, there I also have a friend that uh, was an amazing home brewer and he makes some amazing stouts. He, made, he even made one with coffee. So just flipping back... Uh, Felipe is um, a person who lives in Brazil and he works as a coffee. I'm going to say this wrong, but I believe it's like a coffee grater. This is how I think of it. And uh, he actually sent me up some coffee through his brother 
in the summer and uh, just changed my whole experience of coffee. And every time I drink coffee now, I think of Felipe. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he goes on to say the episode with Tom uh, is amazing. I think for an ATM, it is very interesting to have a group of people uh, that kind of does it together or uh, to have a mentor like he has. Also, some experience with making and building stuff, uh, I guess, doesn't hurt. Uh, I don't plan on making mirrors, but what I lack most is space and basic tools, uh, Felipe. So Felipe actually, he built his own, and I think it's like 160 or 166 millimeter um, reflector out of just what was available to him uh, in Brazil, if I'm remembering that correctly, Shane. Yeah, yeah. He put together a reflector and uh, it looked pretty cool. I, I thought it was uh, extremely resourceful and looks looks and sounds like it's a a, a good performing telescope too. Yeah, that would be a, a pretty decent size where, you know, you're going to really be able to start seeing stuff. Of course, in the Southern Hemisphere, he's going to see stuff that's different than what we see in the North. So um, from time to time, he'll send me photos of the night sky. Um, when he's out observing, he'll he'll take like some, I think it's like some camera and tripod photos and that sort of thing. And uh, and I'm always like, whoa, like Orion's upside down, you know, over that tree and stuff. It's pretty cool. And then as well, um, I think like in... I think in Brazil, and I know other countries are like that, Canada, uh, maybe a little bit less so just because uh, we have the states nearby, but it can be uh, a challenge sometimes for those of us in, in other countries to get certain gear. Sometimes we can get some stuff and you can't get other things. And I think sometimes it can be difficult maybe to get um, some of the parts that he was looking for. So he was, like Shane said, very resourceful. And uh, if he couldn't get it, he just built it. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, Jim sent us a, uh, a bit of a PDF observing log, Shane. This is going to kind of transition into uh, our next topic and maybe another episode. But uh, I, I put like an abbreviated version of what Jim sent. Do you want to take a crack at reading this? It's a pretty interesting report. Yeah. So this is from, I think, November 8th. Uh, and it begins, uh, front patio observing lunar eclipse moon, Uranus, Pleiades, Mars. Uh, I was lying in bed just thinking when I heard the grandfather clock strike four times. Then I remembered uh, this is the morning of the lunar eclipse. I went out the back door, which faces south, but the moon was nowhere to be found amongst the tall trees. At first it appeared uh, there were no stars in the sky, maybe a heavy fog. Uh, but then by shifting my gaze towards the zenith, I noticed Orion and Canis Major straddling the somewhat bare treetops. I dashed dash through the house uh, to the 70 degree Fahrenheit front patio that is almost completely surrounded by my house. There over the west rooftop uh, was the eclipsed moon sporting a dusky red hue. I knew Uranus would be close uh, by the moon, so I popped back inside the 72 degree house <laughs> uh, to look at sky safari. Uh, however, Uranus was next to Jupiter instead of the moon. Uh, even without my morning coffee yet, I then remembered to refresh Sky Safari date to now. And then uh, your Uranus was now about two degrees from the moon and about a moon width uh, off of a straight vertical star hop. I next noticed an equilateral triangle of six to ninth magnitude stars located midway between the moon and Uranus. Uh, leaving the computer behind, I grabbed my four and a half degree field of view Canon uh, 15 by 50 IS binoculars and headed back outside onto the patio. 
Uh, I glanced at the eclipse moon and noticed the equilateral triangle and above it, about two stars was Uranus, uh, or sorry, was Uranus that star-like dot next to, and just a bit brighter and bluer than the nearby HD 18357 star. Uh, only a telescope could say for sure. I popped back into the house, got my STS 10 inch F6. At 277 times, Uranus reminded me of how Jupiter's moons look when highly magnified, except there was no nearby Jupiter, nor were there other moons. Uranus was a bit bluer on the edge, with the rest of the planet more whitish than blue. Uh, finally, I returned to the telescope first with my Ford or with the 40 millimeter to find Mars, then with the five and a half or 5.4 millimeter. Uh, which gives 277 times and a 0.36 degree field of view and a 0.4 exit pupil. Uh, no ice caps, but I did make out uh, faint darker markings, especially on the lower portion of the planet, about four o'clock. Uh, I also noticed that wearing glasses prevents my eye astigmatism from squishing in focus stars into horizontal, horizontal spikes mm -hmm. and prevents planets from oblonging. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds like a really good solar system night yeah i know that sounded like uh like a great great observing session very very cool uh i like how he used his uh binoculars like in conjunction with the 10 inch telescope really really neat yeah for sure so last word goes to uh tom who was our guest uh last week maybe i'll just read this because it kind of uh sort of a bit of a, an extension. We are talking a little bit about offline, uh, about uh, observing uh, logs. And uh, we've kind of gone back and forth with Tom and he had made a suggestion here. And uh, this is pretty good because the way that Jim has sent in his reports, um, like in this uh, PDF narrative form, um, is just an example of how somebody might do an observing log or, or keep track of their observations. Anyway, Tim, uh, sorry, Tom writes, uh, hi, Chris and Shane. Um, I am starting to work through some of your early episodes since I came relatively late to the actual astronomy party. Here are some random thoughts as I listen to episode one. Um, first on Barlow's, it's interesting that both of you are quite against them. As we discussed in another email on magnification, the most I can get on Artemis, which is his 14-inch uh, f2.6 uh, telescope, the most he can get on that telescope is around 210 with his current eyepieces. Although I did also get an Explore Scientific 3x focal extender that will give me over 600 magnification, even though my skies won't support that. But I do also wonder about whether that uh, mushes out the views. As Shane had noted in his Barlow experience, I need to fill in a gap uh, at about 150, but also want to go to 300x if possible. So I would need a 3.5 millimeter eyepiece. Is that even such a thing? Suggestions welcome. So this is sort of the first part. And so I sent him back my suggestion of getting the surprise, surprise 3.5 millimeter Pentax XW. <laughs> <laughs> shocked shocked and uh, you know blown out of my chair <laughs> i just that, i think that was my first xw or among my first xws and uh i remember when i bought it i was like oh, am i ever this is an expensive eyepiece um sometimes you can get them for like 279 dollars american and uh, i'd waited for so sale came up and it was the only one on sale or maybe it was even sometimes for some reason um some of the focal lengths will be even cheaper so maybe it was like 239 or something American. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm just going to buy it. I'll probably want to get it eventually. And 
sometimes I use my 3.8, but oh, this is even more power. And I cannot believe how much I've used that 3.5 millimeter eyepiece. You just, you know, I have small telescopes and often it's giving me like, I have a 355 millimeter focal length um, Takahashi 60 CB. And uh, so that gives me hundred power, which is great in a 60 millimeter fluorite Takahashi. It's a great power. Yeah. yeah those, uh, those shorter focal length telescopes can really handle those short focal length uh, eyepieces. Uh, the, yeah. They're a great match. Use it all the time. And the other thing is that's the eyepiece that I used in Peter uh, Picure's uh, 10 inch perfect 10 F6 and, uh, and had my best view of Saturn ever. So I had that eyepiece in a 10 inch F6. Uh, I don't know what power they get. Someone can figure it out, but it's a lot of power and uh, no problem. That that eyepiece had no problem and the telescope that he, uh, that Peter made had no problem handling it. So I kind of feel like uh, Tom's 14 inch um, should be able to handle 300X. I, I feel like he's uh, somebody who spent uh, a lot of time, was very careful, um, uh, you know, grinding and creating his uh, 14 inch telescope and uh yeah, I should be able to get uh, 300 power to that. That 3.5 Pentax, uh, we'll give him that. Although I don't think Tom wears glasses or maybe I'm mistaken there, but uh, might not need that extra eye leaf. I still think it's a good eyepiece. Very easy to look through. And um, I find that when we get into really high power, having an eyepiece that's easy to look through just makes everything easier. What's your suggestion there, Shane? Um, yeah, you know, three and a half millimeter eyepiece. Um Pentex XW is good. I guess, did he specify whether or not field of view is? Didn't really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, another one to consider would be the, uh, Nagler zoom, the three to six millimeter. Uh, I think they're field of view. Yeah. Yeah. It's about 50 degrees. So, you know, plossal ish, uh, field of view, but you're getting, you know, an awful lot of utility in a a 3.6 or a three to six millimeter zoom, Mm -hmm. roughly around the same price point, I think as the Pentax. Um, so that's a consideration. Uh, you know, I guess there's probably Naglers. I think there's a three and a half Nagler. I don't know much about it. Trying to think what else I'm sure there's others out there too, like Explorer scientific and, you know, uh, Takahashi still makes the T T O E's, which are extremely yeah. well regarded for, um, uh, you know, high contrast critical viewing, but again, yeah. you're probably in they're that expensive. 50 degree yeah. field of view and yeah, they're, well, I think they're in that, you know, same price range around $500. So, yeah. Yeah. So they're going to be about twice the cost of, uh, Pentax XW. So that's, that is one of my reasons for the recommendation is it kind of gives you a pretty wide field of view and it gives you that really nice um, eye relief if, if you need it. And, uh, and I think they're kind of, they're right up there um, for planetary eyepieces. So I feel like that's a good eyepiece. Might yeah. be, might yeah, be I a guess, good candy for an angler though. Yeah. The, uh, the Pentex XW is 389 Canadian. So yeah. it definitely comes in a little cheaper than uh, the Nagler and and certainly the, the tack. So yeah, uh, there's lots of options out there. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, good luck, Tom. Hopefully that uh, you get something there. Uh, Tom goes on to say, I guess one thing I could do to uh, validate whether the focal extender uh, messes with the view is to use it with my 14 and compare it uh, to a straight up view through his uh, five millimeter. Uh, well, not the exact same focal magnification or the exact same magnification. It ought to be uh, close enough to assess how well or not uh, it performs. Uh, as we talked about last week, I really wish there was an easy way to try out multiple eyepieces and filters um, without committing to a purchase first. Um, I, I'm with you there. So typically what I do, if I really want to try something out, 
um, I'll arrange to do it at a star party through a retailer. So if I know that that retailer that carries a certain line or an eyepiece that I want is going to be at the star party, I will just contact them beforehand or sometimes not and just approach them when I'm there. And I've never been refused. I've been surprised at what a retailer will lend me just some random person off the street kind of thing. I've had them hand over, um, you know, uh, five or $600 eyepieces and I've taken them back and said, that ah, didn't work for me. And I always feel a little bit bad, but at the same time, I certainly uh, on this show and other places have recommended those retailers because um, that's taking a lot of faith in in somebody that they really don't know that they're not gonna they're not gonna skate off with uh, with an expensive ocular, right? Yeah, no, it is a great way to to operate if you can. And and the other nice thing about star parties is if you roam around, uh, you know, most astronomers there are very friendly and will yeah. welcome you to views through their telescope and. You know, sometimes they'll have the eyepiece that you're interested in and you can sort of demo it that way too. And like, if I was at a star party, like I always bring my filters up, a lot of nebula filters, O3, H-beta, some broadbands, UHC, blah, blah, blah. And uh, anyway, I usually have like a little baggie, like then I'll attach to my belt and I'll walk around and I would love to try those filters in a 14 inch F2.6. I'm sure I'm not the only person out there that has a fistful of filters that would, uh, that would like to uh, view through a telescope like Tom. So I, I feel like somebody out there should be able to, uh, to coordinate with him to, to do that at Starfest. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, then he goes on. This is, this is interesting. This is kind of where we're going to go from here. Um, so the second thought I had, this is Tom talking, the second thought I had, and I think uh, you discussed this briefly in a recent episode, was on logging. And uh, he says he's really not one for logging. Um, about the best I can do after a session, I tend to email my local circle of observers, uh, ATMs, to update them on what I have been doing with Artemis. So they are sort of observing reports, but they fall well short of doing something rigorous like assessing seeing, transparency, temperature, time of observation, sketches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, I really need a Carolyn Herschel to take notes for me. Uh, which is not to diss Carolyn Herschel, as I know she was a great observer in her own right. Um, but, you know, she did uh, do all the note-taking for her brother, uh, William Herschel. Uh, I know that there is more than one app for that, including Sky Spray, but I can't seem to get into the rhythm of recording my observing sessions. I think it would be a good discussion to really explore how best to do observing logs, both paper and digital. It is also important, of course, for those of us going for various uh, RESC or other certificates. Thanks. Tom. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Shane, what do you think? Yeah. Um, we've talked about logs periodically in previous episodes, but I don't know if we've done a dedicated episode to it. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of different ways to do it. So we certainly, we certainly could, uh, dedicate an episode to that. You know, there's, there's writing, there's people that record, you know, their voice at the eyepiece, mm -hmm. um, there's sketching, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to log observations. And, um, what's interesting to me about logging is that it is a, it is kind of a personal thing and mm -hmm. what works for one doesn't necessarily work for another. And, and like so many aspects of this hobby, it really is all about your personal preference but I think we can definitely throw some, some ideas out there of what works for us. Cause you and I are very different when it comes to logging yeah. our observations and we can certainly talk about that. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, sort of in these further discussions with Tom and come up with the idea of maybe doing a logging observation show 
And uh, what Tom suggested is uh, for people to uh, send us in how they log, not just their observing logs, but if people can send us in how they how they do their logging, maybe some examples, uh, like Shane, you were saying with maybe some people do like a voice recording, maybe some people do sketches, maybe some people follow like a regular template, maybe some people log in, um, you know, certain apps like Sky Safari or something like that. If people can send us, um, you know, what, what they what they do for logs, and then maybe talk a little bit about their logs as well, then we, we can sort of have a, a broader uh, discussion. Because, um, you know, it, it's a very personal thing. And, you know, unless you're doing something like really scientific, or you have to meet a requirement to um, get a certificate or something like that, um, it is going to be sort of something that uh, that you can just sort of do it as you please. So I'm really with Tom on this. So for me, I found that just could it, sort of keeping those type of uh, notes on the seeing and other conditions and all this other stuff, blah, 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 is um, not really, it doesn't really add anything to my logs. Because like, so for example, if I'm observing deep sky objects, it's going to be pretty clear and transparent. It's going to be like, you know, really good for deep sky observing. If I'm if I'm doing planetary observing, it's going to be really um, stable conditions. Otherwise, if I go out and it's not stable conditions and it's not clear enough when the moon's up, then I'll set up, observe for a few minutes, leave the scope, check periodically throughout the night, but I don't even write anything down because the conditions weren't good enough. The conditions are good enough. I'm doing sketches and that. I'm not going to bother giving any of those details because like nobody's ever really going to look at this for scientific purposes. I'm just going to do my sketch and I'm going to capture a lot of detail. Um, I guess the one thing it might do is kind of give people an indication of, well, I'm typically doing this under really good conditions, but that's just how I observe. If it's not really good conditions for planets, I'm probably not doing sketches of the planets because I just won't be able to get that detail. So if I'm doing it, it's good. I don't need to put all those details in. How about you, Shane? <laughs> uh yeah well adaptability for sure is is part of it um but yeah i'm excited to have a conversation about logging i think it'll be good yeah maybe we can get a little bit more into that at that time so folks please send us in your observations and we will make up an episode in coming weeks i, I you know it might take a few weeks to get these observations together but uh yeah, send them in to us. Send, send us an example of your observing, your logs, your sketches, like however you do it. So, for example, for me, um, I'm just doing sketches. I'm not really doing, like, I'll put the date. I'll put the just my local time. I know some people always use UTC. I just put my local time. Um, and then I'm, I'm going to label what it is I'm sketching just so I know it's Mars and not Venus or something like that if it's a bad sketch. And then I might put my powers on. I might not put my powers on because I use about the same powers all the time. I might indicate direction or something like that. And I might label some of the uh, some of the objects or features. But it's all right there in the sketch, you know. But I'm not going to give like transparency or humidity or temperature, anything like that. Chances are if it's in Saskatchewan, it's summer, it's warm. If it's in the winter, it's really cold. And writing those kind of details down when it's freezing cold is just not something I have any interest in doing. Okay. Anything to add to this episode, Shane? No, that is it. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to uh, review and share our podcast. It's the positive reviews that help other people to find our show. And please send us your observing logs and reports so we can work on a future episode to discuss that as a broader topic 
with everybody to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>